Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Life, Love, Marriage, Divorce, the podcast. And I am with a very special guest. Okay. I mean, really special. This is my family. This is my brother. He played for the Green Bay Packers. He also played for Kansas City and a few other teams that you guys are going to find out about. He was drafted in the first round and he has a lot of experience and expertise. And you guys are going to be thrilled with this interview because I'm extremely thrilled to have my brother, Vonnie Holiday, join me. Thank you, Vonnie, for sitting at the mic with me. How are you, brother? Thank you, big sis. I am doing well. You know, like everybody else during this time, navigating the difficulties and the, everything that's happened over 2019 and or 2020 and now into 2021 with the pandemic and social injustice and trying to raise kids and stay sane and safe through all of it. Exactly, exactly. Thank God we look like we're coming onto the other side, you know, but hey, since you said that, tell me a little bit about, you know, uh, we're going to get into a, a full interview of where you came from, you know, where you were born, how you love, fall, fell in love with football and everything. But when you talk about social injustice, you know, as, as a Black man who actually lives in Atlanta, Georgia, um, tell me how has that experience been for you as well as a father of, of, of a Black son, you know? Um, what are some of the things that you, that you share with your son and what have you had any experiences that were, you know, resulted in injustices against you? You know, it's interesting. Um, growing up in a small town in South Carolina, Camden, South Carolina, a little small historic town, horse town, uh, sports have uh, kind of always been uh, what I've been known for. You know, people in the community knew me as a, as a, as a sports guy and with that as a leader in the community, uh, very involved from a young age uh, through church and through other uh, civic act activities. Um, but I remember as a, as a 14 year old, uh, when I got my driver's license, uh, the conversation, you know, we talk about the talk mm -hmm. and um, a lot of my friends that don't look like me, who don't share the same melanin in our skin, um, don't understand that and had no idea. And so, yeah, I, I remember at 14, uh, uh, 15, after I got my driver's license, driving with my, a buddy of mine, one of my best friends through South, through Camden, late at night, trying like all other teenage kids, trying to go see my girlfriend uh, before curfew and make it back home because my mom was going to kill me if I didn't make it back. Uh, <laughs> she didn't mess around. And uh, a cop getting behind us and following us. And, and I remember the fear at that point of this cop following us and then pulling us over eventually, and then coming to our, my car with his weapon, you know, his hand on his weapon. And so, and then his attitude and tone towards me, you know, for the most part, my experiences with, at, at, up until that point with white people had been a positive experience because they saw me as, you know, the, the baseball player, the basketball player, the football player. Oh, that's Bonnie, who's involved with peer tutoring and mentoring and uh, helping with special needs. But in that incident, that man, that cop didn't care about any of that. He just saw me as a big black man, along with my other big black friend whose hat was to the back. And that was very, it was traumatizing. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I'll never forget. It's something that I never wanted my kids to feel, my daughter or my son, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but yeah, I, I will never forget the way I felt 
as this cop, the way he talked to me, the tone that he was taking, how he treated us, how he made us put our hands on the car as he searched us, as he made, as he wanted to search our car. And I'm like, you can't search my car. I have nothing. And so then he made it an issue in, in, in a very threatening way that if I didn't let him set church the car, that, you know, it was going to be all this other stuff. And so I understand how people get caught up and how um, situations escalate when they're supposed to be de-escalating situations. Mm-hmm. And I know they have a tough job. I'm not taking anything away from police officers, but that's why they have the job. And that's what they do. So they need the proper training. And if they don't have that, if you're not have the right temperament, it's like being a football player. If you can't take a coach jumping in your butt sometimes and or your teammates, or you can't take on a double team, then you get fired. You're not there anymore. And it should be the same thing with these cops. They should just be held accountable. And that's accountability. And this cop later on was held accountable because fortunately for me, my family and I, we were, we know a lot of the right people. Right. And so one of my coaches was actually a big time lawyer in the area. We knew the speaker of the house in in South Carolina. He was my key club uh, uh, mentor and, and coach. And so my mom, once I got home after curfew, because I'd been held by this cop, of course, she's mad because she's ready to tear into my butt because I wasn't back on time because she held me accountable. And then I tell her what happened and she gets on the phone and start making her calls. And then, you know, 30 minutes later, this cop comes to our house to apologize for his actions. Wow. Right. Which that doesn't happen a lot. Right. And so when I'm talking to my daughter and my son, because, you know, it's not just men anymore. I mean, Sandra Bland, like all of these women. We have to tell, we have to have the talk and my daughter's older. And so my son got the talk before my daughter, because as all of these things are starting to unfold now, real time for us, right? You know, because of smartphones, you know, these computers that they have in their hands as parents, it becomes even more challenging and and more important that we have real conversations with our kids because we don't, they're going to get it from somewhere else. Right. And so uh, throughout this whole process or throughout, you know, my, my, by the time my daughter turned 13, 14, things are happening in the media. Things are happening on the news. And, 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 and we're seeing it as opposed to as just being this little black kid when I was, you know, 14, who could only tell somebody about it. Now we have evidence. And even that's not enough, right? Even with evidence, there are people out there who George Floyd, nine minutes, me on his neck, you know, and there's people yeah. out there who stand saying, well, he was an uh, addict. He had drugs in the system. Yeah. Well, he wouldn't have died just because he had the drugs in the system. Right. Well, then they tried to say it was the exhaust. Well, why was his head on the ground for that long exhaust? What well, this guy's knee was in the back of his neck. Yeah. With all of these people pleading, it still wasn't enough. Right. And so, yeah, when I'm having conversations with my kids, they are real conversations and they see it now, you know, and, and even their friends, like I'm having real conversations with my friends as a result of it, right? So my friends that don't look at me, look like me, we're having real conversations. And if they can't have those real conversations, then we can't be friends, we can't be associates. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it's more, is important more than ever. One of the, the messages that I've preached uh, along the way to in my camps or my dealings with young people is that we are ambassadors for our people and people that look like us, right? Every time, every day you're out there, you're moving around, you are an ambassador for the cause. Um, And it's unfortunate, but it is what it is, because there is some person that you're going to encounter who just in their day to day, typically in their life, they don't have to deal with us. They don't have to engage us because that's just the way the system is set up. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, We typically are forced because of the roles 
and the opportunities that, that they have to engage them, but they don't necessarily have to do that with us. Right. And so when you encounter that little old lady or that young kid in the grocery store who may be looking at you kind of sideways, and if you're out there acting a complete idiot, then that's what they're gonna remember. Mm-hmm. So it's important that you conduct yourself accordingly when you're out there to represent us in the light that we wanna be seen in. Mm-hmm. And I know some people will sit, look at that and say, it shouldn't be that way. And I agree, but it is. And that's where we are in, 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 in our country and in our history. And so it's always been apparent to me that that's it. You know, the, And it was instilled to me by my grandmother. I think that if you treat people like you wanna be treated, it goes a long way. This is something I had this conversation with someone. I'm like, have you ever had to have a talk with your kid? Not, not just, not the basics that the insurance is in the glove box. <laughs> the, put your hands on the wheel, don't move. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. You know, be respectful. Not that they aren't already, but you have to reinforce that you never know what kind of officer you're going to get. That, that's, something's wrong there. That you can say that talk happened to you and you're passing it to your kids. Well, that has happened to all of us and we keep passing it down to our kids. Something's wrong with that picture. You know what I'm saying? My friends that that aren't black or brown, they never had that conversation. They've never had to have that conversation. They don't even understand. And when they hear about the talk, like we know. When somebody says the talk, you're like, oh, yeah, of course, the talk. But when you say that to them, they're like, what do you mean, the talk? They never have to have that conversation with their kids. And that is a privilege, right, that they want They act like they don't know, but that is a privilege. You are privileged enough to not have to have that conversation with your kids. Then don't belittle me or or insult me, right, my intelligence, because just that concept alone, just that whole idea should tell you about the difference between you and me. And it's just because of the color of my skin, because you were born with white skin and I was born with brown skin. And outside of that, you come into my home and you can eat and break bread with me and we can play baseball together, our kids and basketball and I can coach your kids. But away from that, this is my life. It doesn't matter when, when they see me and I'm not in my uniform or I'm not in that, in that environment out at that park with that whistle on my neck and, and, and talking to the kids. If I'm just walking around downtown Atlanta or driving in rural Texas, I'm just another big black man yeah. until they, you know, until they find out otherwise. And sometimes they don't even care then. It's funny that you say that because my daughter actually got pulled up by the police in a rural area driving back to school mm-hmm. and she called me up and immediately my heart, like I never thought I'd, I can't just describe the feeling that I had when my daughter called me up and said she was being pulled over by the police and, mm-hmm. and trying to rattle off as fast as I can things to do to be safe and to make sure you get out of this situation alive and we can deal with whatever later. And that was a very um, humbling feeling. It was a very, uh, it was a feeling that I was helpless Yeah. Right. Because I couldn't be there to protect my daughter and just praying and hoping that she would just get out of the situation, that this cop would be a decent person and just do his job and let her go on about her way. Right. And that's not that's not right. Not a good feeling. That's not a good feeling to have as a parent. And I think that boils down to, you know, when you talk about a privilege, um, if I have a conversation with a friend that doesn't look like me and, and we can just start there remove the political stuff, remove cultural differences, just move all that out the way. If you're telling me that you've never had to tell your child, put your hands on the wheel, let the police see them, say it, that right there should just say, okay, there's a difference. Where can, yes. where can I meet my friend in that? Because that's, that's wrong. I yes. wouldn't want that to happen to my kid, let alone 
my friend's kid, you know? Yeah. And I think if we could just start with the simple stuff, you know, maybe we can get somewhere. But anyways, we're going we gonna, we gonna to give it up to the Lord like we normally do and just keep being strong <laughs> and sharing the information. Um, so let's move on. Let's move on to, to something else. You were born in Camden, South Carolina. Yes. Your mom, I love your mom. She's amazing. You have two sisters. Um, grandma is a heavy influence in your life. Yeah. Tell me, being that man of the family, right? Mm -hmm. How was it growing up in, in Camden, South Carolina? You know, it, it's certainly a different life than the life I live now. You know, we grew up uh, in retrospect, right? We grew up, or I grew up uh, on the opposite end of, of, of the spectrum. I grew up uh, uh, poor, right? Poor. But as a kid, you couldn't tell me that I was poor, yeah. right? Because I had... I mean, my cup uh, was overflowing with, 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 with love and all the things that I needed, right? I, I didn't feel like I ever needed anything. I didn't get all the things that I wanted, but everything that I needed, I had. You know, we, my grandmother and my, my mother and my aunts, my sisters, we always, my uncles, we always had food on the, on the table, always had a roof over my head. Um, there was always support for whatever I had going on. Um, it wasn't until... Probably my freshman year in high school when a reporter came to my home to have a conversation with me about sports and, and the potential uh, of going off to college and the success I was having, that he wrote a story. And in that story, the picture that he painted as he drove into my neighborhood and up into my house uh, about this poor neighborhood and this house that I lived in and the way through his lens, I didn't see it the same way. But when he, I read it, I was, it was upsetting right? because I didn't want that to be the picture that was painted to people that didn't know me. Um, and I didn't see it that way, but he opened my eyes, right. To the fact that, and I knew it, like I, I, I it was something always in me that like, if my situation or my family situation is going to change, then chances are, I was going to have to be the person to do that. Right. And I was going to use sports to go to college and get an education because we didn't have a, a, a tremendous amount of money mm -hmm. to do that. And yeah, you can take on debt with, with, with uh, loans and things like that, but I didn't really see that that was an option or didn't feel like that was the right option. Um, so I wanted to use sports as that vehicle to give me an opportunity to get an education so that I could go out and do something different and be something different so that I could come back and help my family. Mm -hmm. Now I grew up in a house with five women. Yeah. My, you just named it. My grandmother, my mother, an aunt, and two sisters. Um, and our house was a small house mm -hmm. with a lot of love, but a small house. And even in that small house, it was always welcoming and open to whoever needed space or a place to lay their head or a seat at the table. That was my grandmother. And that's, that's who I am, too. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. But that's how I see the world. And that's how I am. But with, with that, that childhood, came some traumas that I didn't even recognize until, you know, now I'm 45 years old, right? 45 years old and you're navigating, navigating the difficulties and, and everything that life brings you um, about what that did for me as a young boy, because I felt like I had to be the man of the house. I felt like I could not show emotions all the time. I felt like I had to be a caregiver and take care of so many people that whatever I, I needed in that way wasn't important. 
you know, it wasn't important enough, right? You know, I can't complain or worry about me and whatever I might be dealing with because I got to take care of these other people and I got to make sure they're okay. So you were suppressing emotions. No doubt about it. Suppressing emotions, right? Suppressing them. And that's not healthy. That's Mm -hmm. not healthy. It is really not healthy. And it's nothing... I'm not taking anything away from my mom or my grandmother or my sisters. It was just, it was what it was. Yeah. But now that I'm older and I know better, and I, well, I'm starting to know better, I'm starting to see some of those things that are kind of showing up in, in, in how I react to situations, whether it be my interpersonal relationships, intimate relationships with my relationships, with my, still with my family and my friends. Um, it's something that there has to be attention paid to, right? Yeah. Um, it's something I have to work through. I know mental health and things like that in the black community are something that we don't focus on. We don't talk about. Um, and so more, now, so more than ever, we talked about this, like during the pandemic or, you know, you start to really have some self-reflection and you have a lot of time on your hands and, and you really start to see some people break under the weight and the pressure of everything that's been going on. And sometimes it's our strongest friends and, and we forget about them because they have been able to be Superman, you know, put that S in their chest for so long. And it, those are sometimes the people that we need to check on the most, or at least check on every now and then, right? Um, and I, I, I put myself in that category. I'm one of those people. I think it's important that we, we just as, as Black people, we acknowledge it and, and see it for what it is. It's not a weakness, yeah. right? There, there, there's strength in, in understanding and educating yourself and, 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 and moving accordingly. And so, um, yeah, I've I love my childhood. I love growing up in Camden, South Carolina. So many things that uh, made me who I am today that are positive. Right. Um, and, and negatives can be positives, right? Understanding your, your, your insufficiencies, right? And, 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 and working on them and working through them is equally important. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where I am in my life. But, but going back to South Carolina, loved it. I, I, I used to try to send my kids back in the summer for a week or two just so they can get some of that. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, you know, you work so hard to change your situation that all of a sudden your kids grow up in Buckhead, Atlanta, in Atlanta, in the Buckhead community in this shell, and they live a, a very good life. Then they lose some of that grit mm-hmm. to me um, and some of that fire. Right. You know, that motivation um, is just different. Yeah. Um, because, like I said, I was motivated and driven in a completely different way because I had to go get it if it was going to be different, I had to go get it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's, as a father, there's a delicate balance, right? You want to give your kids everything, mm-hmm. but then you're pissed off because they don't have that fire and that grit. You know, they have their own room and their own bathroom and they eat at Chick-fil-A and eating sushi and steaks. Yeah. And, you know, when, when, when it's time to go out to eat there, hey, let's get sushi. And it's not just you know, the $5 <laughs> sushi down there, you know, they want the good stuff. They want right? to get the good stuff. <laughs> they want to get the good stuff. Yeah. And that's why you work so hard. So as a parent, that's why you're like, yeah, this is why I did this. Like, I'm happy to be able to give this to my kid. But then there's sometimes you look at them and in some situation arises, whether it be in sports or in life, and, and they don't have a that no. <clears throat> that you no. want. No. And, and, and you you complain about it. But you're a part of the problem. You're, yeah. You're, 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 part of the problem. you're part of the problem. Yeah. But at the same time, that's what you want, right? You want to give your kids more than you have. And so trying to find that balance and trying to, you can't manufacture that. So you have to find a way to connect with them in a different way Mm -hmm. to get that out of them. So that's a a challenge. That is a challenge. And that's interesting that you say that. I I did an interview um, 
last week and we were talking about that because we had our grandparents where we or our cousins and when you play outside and we didn't have all of this technology with the phone or what have you you know we had to go out and you were your referee you were the coach on the team you were all of those things you know we were taught how to problem solve at a much earlier age than our kids right because they have all these other luxuries which is a blessing that's each generation has always provided or wanted more for their children than they had. That's just what generations do, right? But I definitely understand, you know, the same thing with my kids. You want the very best for them. You're running all around town, making sure that they have everything they need, every sport activity, you know, paying for this, paying for that or what have you so that they can have these opportunities. But finding the balance, I'm with you and and trying to do that. Finding the balance in anything in life, you know. Um, in this world that we live in. Tell me a little bit about how you fell in love with football. Now, I know that you were, you know, basketball, you were everything, basketball, baseball, football, growing up. How did you know football was it? And when did you know? You know, it's interesting because that was later in life. Like, it probably wasn't until my junior year that I really kind of started to to have that shift and focus on football. Because I, I started out playing baseball, and I really, really loved baseball. And I and I, in, in hindsight, like I really loved it probably, it was probably my favorite sport because my mom enjoyed it so much. You know, she enjoyed me playing baseball. She really did. Um, and, and it was really uh, tough to get her to, to let me play football, even though my, I had some uncles that went on and one played at Johnson C. Smith, one played at South Carolina State. I had some cousins that played a little football uh, at Winston-Salem State. Um, but, you know, my uncles would really have to press and push her to allow me to play football. She's like, my baby's going to get hurt. I don't want to let that happen. You know, she was that mom. And they're like, what are you talking about? He's the biggest kid out there. He's going to be okay. Right. And so finally let me play. And then slowly, I really started to, to, to fall in love with it. Like I was just a competitive kid. I don't care what it was. You know, I, if you put a tennis racket in my hand and say, go play. And I'd never played, you know, up until that point, then I felt like I was good enough to beat you. That's just how I felt. Like I would find a way to beat you. And so for me, it was more of the competitive aspect of it that kind of drove me. But then football is different because it's the ultimate team sport, right? It's the ultimate team sport. No matter how good one guy is, you know, basketball, you can get away with one or two guys being good yeah. and still win games. Baseball, you can have a great pitcher, right? Um, a good catcher, two guys that can hit, you know, one guy that you, know, you can get by. But, but, but football, it is the ultimate team sport. It's all 11 guys, offense, defense, special teams, coming together, working. And that part of the game just always, you know, was, was, was just – I was always amazed by it, all of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talk about life and, and the lessons that you learn or, and that can be applied, you know, you can take from sports in a sport like football and apply it to life in a work space, space in a family space where I can't – I got to do my job. Mm-hmm. And if I do my job, I can count, I can count on, or I need to be able to count on my wife doing her job or my kids doing this or my or same thing in the workforce. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm over here and if we're building a car and I'm on tires. I got to make sure, you know, the car is going to work because the guy who's doing the, the exhaust, he's going to do his job or the guy who's doing the steering, he's going to do his job. Um, but football is like that. I mean, it's just, and then, then, there are hardships. It's not easy, right? It is not easy. You're outside, you're in the heat, you're in the cold, you're in the elements. 
and you're still out there working towards this one goal. And, you know, typically the teams that have the synergy and have that um, chemistry, right, where it's bigger than just the X's and O's. Um, and that's what I learned at Carolina. You know, of course, you kind of learn it in, in, in high school and in grade school. But when you get to that next level, you really get it. Yeah. Um, so for me, that's what I fell in love with football. Not thinking that it would lead me to the life that I have now and into the NFL and meeting the Dotsons, right? Um, but it was my vehicle, right? And I enjoyed to do, I enjoyed doing it, but it was my vehicle to get an education, mm-hmm. to better myself, to better my family. At the time, I thought I was going to go off and go to law school, right? Because I worked at a law, a law firm, uh, one of my part-time jobs uh, growing up. I had a lot of jobs. Well, I've been working for as long as I know because... <laughs> And even as a, as, a, as a young man growing up in a house with all those women, uh, never wanting to be a burden or be a weight, right? You know, wanted to be a helper and understanding that there were things that I wanted that I couldn't ask for from them. So I need to go out and get it. So I've been working for a long, long time, for as long as I can remember. Yeah. yeah. You know, grocery stores, dog pounds, you name it. Like jobs that a kid yeah. at my age shouldn't, ha- shouldn't have had, but I was out there getting it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so... Football became that sport, you know, about my junior year, I realized like this, I could see myself doing this. And then of course, you know, the, the letters come and the, the scouts come in or, or the, the, the coaches come in and they offer you the world and tell you how great you're going to be. And I'm, I'm listening, but I'm like, look, you know, for me, it's more about the education, right? right? So where can I go get the best balance and where could I be close enough to home or far enough away that I get that experience of that autonomy, right? And, and so I can be learn to be independent. And North Carolina just kind of became that, that, that place for me. That was it. That was it. Was there another school? I mean, you're thinking from the perspective of family, because that's mm-hmm. how, how, you, how you are wired. And North Carolina, isn't family can make it there, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Was there a school that you really felt like I could, I could have seen myself there playing? It, it came down to Penn State and North Carolina. Penn State. Penn State and North Carolina. Yeah. In fact... Uh, Bobby Ingram was a senior when I was a freshman, but I played on a varsity team mm-hmm. and he was really, really good. I mean, one of the best high school players that has come through South Carolina and he went on to play at Penn State. And so we developed a relationship because I would go up to games. I would go to camps. Joe Paterno, Joe Paterno, Joe the Paterno. man, the legend oh, man. would yeah. come down to Camden, South Carolina to watch me play basketball and, wow. and visit with my family and friends. And so everyone thought I was going to go to Penn State. But in comes this funny talking bigger than life personality, Matt Brown, who won me over, you know, the, the opportunity at North Carolina, everything that it offered in that research triangle, you know, going to a predominantly white school, but at the same time being at, you know, North Carolina Central, A&T, St. Alves, like all, you know, so having that, all of that to offer, I'm like, I can't pass this up. Like this works. And it's only three hours from my home. My mom, my family, they can make it to games and watch me play. Right. right? And so that was really, really important. And it worked out. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So you go there, you have a smaller collegiate career, and then you enter the NFL draft. You go in the first round. I think it was 19th to the Green Bay Packers. Am I correct? What was that experience like? You know, the NFL, it is crazy how, <laughs> I mean, it's like winning a lottery. I mean, you're so excited. I mean, you know, you instantly, your life has changed, you know, from a financial standpoint. But then just in your experiences, right? I mean, it is truly that rock star and, you know, entertainment, TV, like all of that, the celebrity that goes with that. But 
it's, it's interesting because even throughout college, I was having success and playing a lot. And I was playing with guys that were going to the NFL, but I still didn't see myself as an NFL player, right? And so it wasn't until my junior year where agents and stuff were coming around saying, are you coming out? Like, coming out, what do you mean? Am I coming out to do what? <laughs> like, I, I got to graduate, man. I don't know what's going to happen. I got to get a job. Like, what are you All talking right. about? That's what I'm here for. And then the guy who played behind me got drafted the first pick of the third round. And the guy who played beside me got drafted the first pick of the second round. I'm like, wait a minute. Right. <laughs> I might have a chance here, man. I might have a chance here. You know, and so um, I remember going through the whole process, the combines and, and the NFL coaches coming in and talking to you. And and then the uh, never, ha- never having a conversation with Green Bay. I remember having one conversation in the hallway in passing with uh, Reggie McKenzie and uh, I think Coach Holmgren was there. Yeah. Um, Mr. Wolf was there. Mr. Ronald, he was there. And so on draft day, all of a sudden, when they start putting out the projections and they're like, you know, top defensive tackles or defensive ends, and you're in that top five, and you're like, what the hell? Wait a minute. I'm going to get drafted this high? Not only go to NFL, but I got a chance to go first round? And so when it happened, it was just – it was surreal. It was – Man, you can't explain the excitement, the joy. Uh, I remember when my daughter was younger, she was explaining the difference between happiness and joy, right? She said happiness is when you somebody gives you a piece of cake, you know, and, and you eat a piece of cake. But joy would be cake falling from the sky. Like, what is this? You know what I'm saying? I like that. And so that's what it was like. I mean, it was just overwhelming. And, and then just the way that, some higher power puts you in the right place mm-hmm. for you. So even though I went 19 pick, you know, there was disappointment because they were like, I grew up a Dallas Cowboys fan. Mm-hmm. And Jerry Jones was like, man, you know, we love you. We like the way you play. You got the ninth pick. If you're there, we're seriously considering taking you. And then the ninth pick goes by. You didn't go to the ninth pick. And mm-hmm. then the 10th pick. And then the 14th pick. The Carolina Panthers are like, you're our homeboy, homegrown. You're there to the 14th pick. Don't worry about it. You're going. And then they didn't pick me. And then lo and behold, Green Bay moves up two, three spots, gets me at 19. I ended up in Green Bay, Wisconsin with, first of all, just a, just a unique playing experience in a small town. You think the NFL, you think New York, you think San Francisco, you think Miami. I mean, you think all these big places and these big cities. And then I ended up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I remember <laughs> flying in the first time and looking, first of all, it felt like I had my own plane because when yeah. I flew in the first time, it was the pilot. It was a, a, a flight attendant. It was a pilot who was flying jump seat or flying back to Wisconsin and me. So I felt, first of all, I felt like, man, this is, I made it. Like I'm on a plane by myself. Like this almost like flying private. <laughs> and as we're flying in, I think I flew through Chicago mm-hmm. and that flight was so short. And I look out the window and I'm just seeing fields and fields and farm and farm and fields and I'm like where the hell am I like where is the city where is green no green bay I'm thinking yeah. about the bay yeah you know this is gonna be awesome I knew it was a frozen tundra was gonna be cold I you know seen and know about that but then I fly into this little airport that had like six gates yeah I'm like where am I yeah. what is this but then just once again finding myself in a situation that was right for me because I get off the plane and there are these all these people in the airport just supportive, happy that I'm there 
as a Green Bay Packer in their first round pick. And that kind of set the tone for, for, for my life and for my playing experience, having the opportunity to play with Reggie White and Gilbert Brown and, and, and Santana, you know, Santana, you know, and, and meeting you guys. I mean, not many cities or teams that I've played with and cities I've been in have ma- rivaled that or matched that. Mm-hmm. Being a young man, being afforded the opportunity to learn how to be a professional and to do it the right way, right? And the things that are important, right? And that was the only city or the only playing experience where there was just nothing else to do. So we spent a lot of time together as yeah. teammates in our families and our friends getting to know each other. Mm-hmm. And since then, you know, I've tried to go out even into these big cities and give the young guys that feel by having you know, our Thursday night get togethers and, and inviting people to my house during the holidays to, to, to break bread, because that's really, really when you become true teammates. That's really when you become, that's why Green Bay has the success that they have. Exactly. Um, because these guys get to know each other and it's bigger, like I said before, than X's and O's. Mm-hmm. You know, you really get to know the man you're playing next to and his family and, and the importance of that. And you play, I think you play harder and you, and you work better together. And so, yeah. Just awesome. That first round, you know, going to the NFL draft, all the experiences, all the people I've met, you know, sitting here talking to you as a result of that. Uh, you became my big sister, always looking out for me. I, I've, I've had a lot of your cooking, right? <laughs> a lot of your cooking over the years and sitting around your table and watching your kids grow. And, and remember the first time meeting Amani uh, 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 and, and, and Kari as they bounced all over the couch as I'm sitting there. I didn't have any kids at the time. I'm just trying to watch TV and eat, and they're all over the place and having a conversation with them. And now they're all grown up. Kari's a—he's not only is he a little brother and like a nephew, but he's—he's he's, my—you know—he's my—he's my guy. You know, we become friends, and it's just—it's just amazing how how life comes full circle and where you find yourself. As a result of a sport that I used to play in the backyard and run around with, and it kept me young for 15 years in the NFL, and at 37. I still felt like a kid. I'm playing with guys that were born in 1990, in the 90s. You're like, you know what I was doing in the 90s, son? <laughs> you know, uh, but yeah, it's, it's been a great ride. It, it really, you know, and you you really added to the team and just in, in full circle moment, you know, when you talk about how the chemistry, Green Bay is a very unique place um, to play. Um, it is definitely a, a family atmosphere. It's one of, it's been one of the best experiences that I've had, you know, um, being a part of, of an organization. So you left Green Bay. What year did you leave Green Bay? I left Green Bay in 2003. And then you went to Kansas, Kansas, City. Kansas City Chiefs. Kansas City Chiefs. How was that experience? Because Arrowhead, I hear that it's pretty, it's a good place to play. Once again, just, just, just my, my, my story and the way this thing has played out has just been amazing. Um, I leave a very storied, rich tradition in Green Bay, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I go to Kansas City. I'm not saying it has the same history and, and, and tradition that they have in, in Green Bay, but it's another one of those teams that when you think about the NFL and you think about football and 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 football town, Kansas City is, is that. Mm-hmm. And so, a little bit of a bigger city, right? Now I'm like, oh, this is what I'm talking about. I'm, baby. I'm in a big city now. And it's still just little Kansas City, like in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, I'm in a big city now. You know, I'm going, I live in a high rise on the plaza. And I walk across the street and go eat and hang out. Very, you know, another great, great playing experience. Not not Green Bay, but in a different way. You know, I, 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 I often 
when I talk about Green Bay, I talk about football and the playing experience. Like football in Green Bay is like religion. It's like church, yeah. right? Kansas City is more college atmosphere, mm-hmm. right? It's more of a college atmosphere, right? I mean, you still have that, you know, fans are fiery, a little bigger of a town. So people kind of spread out, live all over the place. So you don't, you don't have the same type of personal relationships outside of football to you because a little more to do. Right. Um, but playing for Dick Vermeil and, and that group, uh, Dick Vermeil, legendary Hall of Fame coach, uh, a true player coach. Yeah. Right? He's the coach that if he walks into a restaurant and you're in the restaurant, he doesn't care about his table and his seating. He's going to come down, pull up a chair, sit down and talk to you and your family and have some wine with you. And then he can finally go to his table if he goes to his table. And then <laughs> when it's time for the check to come, you look around and you're like, hey, coach already took care of it. Wow. And you're like, come on, man. And then he always wants to have every position, every group. He wants to bring you into his home. He's going to cook for you. He and his wow. wife were very, very good about that. You know, having a whole team in, the, in their house, in their space. And so I really, really enjoyed my time there. Um, got injured in my second year mm-hmm. and ended up not. Actually, I thought I was going to retire after that. I mean, but in my set. Uh, so that's my year seven. So I played five years in Green Bay and two years in Kansas City. After my second year, I got hurt. Uh, thought I was going to thought I was done. And then uh, had the opportunity, got a call from a guy who's another legendary, famous guy, Nick Saban, who had his one year stint in the NFL, yeah. but called me up and said, hey, I know you're down on yourself right now. You're a little hurt, uh, but we feel like you can get healthy. You can play in this 3-4 defense, and I think we feel like you'd be good at it. You know, this may be uh, 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 rejuvenate your career. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, you know, I had my, you know, I was apprehensive about it. I had been a right defensive end or a left defensive end uh, for most of my life or career in, in, in the league. And so I'm like, man, I don't know if I could play a three, four, you know, it seems like it's a little more work. It's, it's not what I'm used to, but I get down and I get in the defense and I actually fall into, it's amazing how you, we talk about it again, being in the right place at the right time. But I had an opportunity to go into a locker room with some very, very good guys. When I say this locker room, to me, rivaled that locker room in Green Bay mm-hmm. because of the mixture of veteran players who were just hardworking, humble, good people. Uh, I, I think about that locker room in, in Green Bay and the guys that I still keep in touch with, you know, who are my, my not just my friends, but my family. And then I think about that locker room in Miami. Mm-hmm. You know, and even at that time, being an older player, you know, as you would think, because the average year, the average career is three and a half years. Exactly. You know, I'm going into I'm going into your eight now, but I go into this locker room and you have Kevin Carter, who's just a phenomenal guy. I mean, he he's on the SEC network now, and, and anybody who's seen him uh talk and the way he carries himself, that's who he is, but just a great, great guy. Jason Taylor, you know, who was the face of the organization, yeah. but just an incredible player, became a really, really good friend. Keith Trailer, um, who had played a long time, big guy. Jeff Scanina, who's just a journeyman, just a hardworking guy from Chicago. Uh, uh, Debo, who played with me in, in Green Bay. You know, we, yeah. we connected in, in, in Miami. Um, and, and the list goes on uh, in terms of just guys who are just really, really good guys and just a locker room that felt like home. And, and they it, it made me kind of remember my time in Green Bay. It was that kind of feel. So really, even though it's Miami, Miami's a whole nother story. And, 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 and once again, timing, right? You know, I, I don't know that I could have had success or been, uh, had the same experience in Miami had I gone there at 21, 22, yeah. right? You know, so the timing was everything. Uh, perspective, right? And, and yeah. being settled and being able to just kind of enjoy 
Miami for what it was and not lose yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that was important too. Uh, and, and, and Nick only lasted, lasted one year there yeah. because then, you know, he, he's a college coach. You know, he's a, he's a type of fiery guy that needs to be with young, young men, not established veteran players who are grownups. Yeah. And Nick has a way of, I mean, you see him on the sidelines, you yeah. see how he talks to even reporters, right? Yeah. I mean, that's Nick. And that's what makes him great at what he does. But in the NFL, when you have guys who have been playing 10 years already or 12 years and are making seven, you know, five, seven million dollars, you know, more than you are, you can't talk crazy to these people. You have to, you have to approach them differently. And he, he didn't get that. And so he found, he, he quickly realized like, Hey, it's this ain't for me. me. <laughs> let me go. Let me, let me go down here. Alabama needs a coach. Let me go down to Alabama. Let me, yeah. let me do what I do. Exactly. And so kudos, kudos to him. And yeah. so I leave Miami. I'm in Miami for four years. I leave Miami. I go to Denver for a year. Um, Parcells and I, you know, didn't see eye to eye and wanted me to take pay cuts and stuff. And I'm like, shit, I still can play. Why would I take a pay cut? <laughs> and if I do take a pay cut, like, I, like I'm, I'm fair. Yeah, yeah. I'm a businessman. I understand what you're doing. But if I do take a pay cut, let me have an opportunity to make my money back. That's yeah. all. Right. And so I, I, he, he didn't agree with that. So he let me go to Miami. I go to Denver for a year. That was a, Denver's a great city. Another one of those teams with tradition and history and really, really love my time out there in terms of the culture and the, the, the environment and just Denver and the Rockies in the background, but just a team that was in disarray. Yeah. I mean, just a lot of young kids, uh, leadership wasn't where it was supposed to be. Met one of my favorite teammates out there and uh, 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 Dawkins, you know, he was, you know, you, you watch him play for Philly and everything he did there and the kind of guy he is and the, how fire he is and he lights people up. But just in terms of the man he is, he's a, he's a man of God. Mm-hmm. And he reminded me and carried himself a lot like a Reggie White. Yeah. The way Brian Dawkins carries himself. Yeah. You know, it's just a quietness about him where he doesn't force what he's doing on you but he leads by example. He walks by example. And it, it, you have to take note. It's not something that you just have to take note of. Mm-hmm. And so having that experience in Denver and getting a chance to know someone like him who reminded me of someone that was so dear to me and, and I cherished was awesome. So every place I've been, I picked something up, right? Mm-hmm. So I leave, I've been in Denver for a year. I leave Denver. And when I'm in Denver, Shanahan lives there. He's telling me, hey, I'm going to get a job next year. I'm going to be somewhere good. And if they don't sign you back, I'm coming for you. And sure enough, he called me up in offseason. He got he said, got the deal at Washington. Called me up. Like, look, don't sign anywhere yet. I want you here in Washington. I'm like, if you want me, I want to be where I'm wanted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I go to Washington for a year and have some success and enjoy it. Love the DMV area. Awesome. It reminds me a lot of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So I leave Washington and then I go to they traded me in my 13th season. Who the hell gets traded in their 13th <laughs> season? I'm, I'm ready to ride off into the sunset. I got a perfect setup, yeah. a short ride to Atlanta. Um, at this point in my career, I'm a vet. And so on Sunday after the game, the team's flying back to Washington. I'm flying to Atlanta to be with the family um, and flying back on Tuesday nights. I got a perfect it's setup. Perfect. Like, this it's is perfect. awesome. Yeah. It's perfect. I can fly back sometime Tuesday, Wednesday morning and still get to work on time. Yeah. Um, but then I get traded out to, of all places, Arizona. That's all the way across the country. That's a different setup. Yeah. Mo, I'm like, <laughs> I, Shanahan's on the phone talking to me about this trade and what they're doing. And I'm like, you know what, coach? I may just retire because that doesn't really, doesn't really fit what I, what, what I saw myself or where I was at that time. So I, uh, I tell him, like, you know, this is not really kind of how I saw things playing out. At this point in my career, I've been playing for 13 years. You know, financially, I'm okay. 
you know, I'm still trying to chase the ring because I don't have the ring. I missed it in Green Bay. And I didn't see Arizona being that team that was ready to go to the, to the, to the next level. And so I, he's like, well, look, take 48 hours, go back to Atlanta, get with your team. You guys talk it over and let's talk after that. So I pack all my stuff up. You know, it's an emotional. I've only been in Washington for, you know, a year and some months, but developed some really good relationships there. And so it was emotional knowing that that was the last time I was going to be there. Yeah. And, and, and I didn't even realize at that point how emotional that, that would be because I'm seriously contemplating retirement mm-hmm. you know, at that point. Seriously. Like, wow. I got little kids. I don't want to, I don't want to be all the way across the country. Be, well, yeah. yeah. I'm in a different time zone, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, at that point we had made the decision because our daughter's at that age now where we saw it a better fit for her to be in one place for school. And exactly. We were doing Montessori, but you know, she was kind of, getting those peer groups and developing those relationships. And so we didn't want to move them around. Mm -hmm. And so uh, DC was great. So I come back to Atlanta and I'm, I'm, I'm in Atlanta and I'm seriously, I'm I'm, after 13 years, most people don't have that opportunity. You know, like we talked about earlier, it's three years, three, you know, three and a half years, you're done. Now I'm 13 years in and I'm like, you know, it's been a nice run. You know, I can just on my terms, like shut this thing down but I was still hungry. I still wanted to play. I still was chasing that ring and I wasn't really ready to retire because I feel like I still had something to give to the game. So Larry Fitzgerald and Joey Porter and Jay Feely, uh, Jay Feely and all these guys I've, I've, I've known throughout the course of they have relationships throughout the course of my career are calling me up because they're out in, in Arizona and they're like, look, man, you're going to like it out here. You know, coach Wizard Hunt's a player coach. Arizona's beautiful. I know it's a long way away, but just give it a chance. Like we, we have something out here. We feel like we got a good quarterback coming in that can help us take us to the next level. And so after much talking and debating and convincing, I'm like, you know what? Let me go give it a shot. Why not? You know, we'll, we'll make it work. You know, we, we're resilient. You know, as a family, we, we, we can make it work. So I go out to Arizona and Mo, it was one of the best decisions, Wow. you know, I, I could make. The relationships what, what that made it so good, you know, from the from the time I stepped down in, in Arizona, um, a lot of people probably have seen Larry Fitzgerald from afar. You know yeah. what he's done in the game, just personally, the, the records and the stats and all of that. But he's one of those guys that could have easily fit into that Green Bay Packer locker room. Mm-hmm. Right. Very giving, very just genuine. He made me feel at home from the time I stepped off the plane opened up his homes, like, no, you can't stay in a hotel. No, you stay at my place. And he has a big spread out there, right? Yeah. Don't, don't worry about it. I got you. Like, you, you, you're going to love it here. And I think, you know, for him, him, he needed a big brother. Like, you know, he had lost his mom. You know, family's important to him. And he, he kind of needed, probably needed me as much as I needed him at the time. Mm-hmm. And so he made my, he was one of, of course, one of the reasons, but he made my stay in my, my two years in, in Arizona just, a great, great experience. You know, he's like, no, no, you're not living all the way out in Chandler. You're going to live in, in Scottsdale. Come on, man. I got you. And, and every day, you know, he, he, he offered for me to just stay in his house. Like, look, you could just stay here. And when your family come, I'm like, look, man, I am a grown man. Like I cannot be living in your house. I got a family that comes out. I appreciate it, but no. And so I, I moved out, but every Every day, you know, he he had a chef. That he'd be really pays attention to how he eats. So he has a chef that comes in to cook every day. He's like, are you coming over for dinner? Are you coming over for dinner? Yeah. Um, and so even though I was all the way across the country and at the time didn't know a lot of people in that area, 
he made me feel welcome and, 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 and at home. And so I'll always be indebted to him for that and, and feel that sense of, you know, he's family. He's a friend. Anytime he's in Atlanta or anywhere I can do anything for him, he, he's that guy. He's, he's that just guy. a class act. And, and, and getting to know his family and his friends and his network of people out there just made me, I, I, I just, it was an easy transition, right? Joey Porter was out there. I had to play with him in Miami. It's crazy, but we had a good time out there. Um, Dan Williams, Calais Campbell, just so many just good guys. You know, even, even our coaches out there. You know, Wizen Hunt is a, truly a player's coach. And he's from Atlanta, so we had that connection. He played at Marist here, and I've coached at Marist flag football. So, yeah, it worked out. So, so my, my playing career has been awesome. My experiences, I would not trade. You know, would I, do I think sometimes what it would be like to have been in Green Bay for 15 years playing? Yeah, I do. I do. But, you know, it was another plan for me, right? There were other people that I need to touch and need to be touched by. And even in all of this, my like we talked about, it, my families and, and my friends, their experience, right, coming along for the ride, experiencing other parts of the world, other parts of the country, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. and other people, other culture, um, equally important. So I wouldn't change it for anything. I think that is amazing. And I wanted you to have this opportunity to share with my listeners because, you know, we know that the NFL draft was just last month. And guys who will walk or guys who will experience much of the same um, experience that you've had, being in that locker room, being traded, uh, being Being cut, cut, being injured, all of those things come with it. Even though it appears to be this glamorous life for many, it is a very blessed and privileged life, but it's not always easy. No. You know, there are a lot of sacrifices that come with it, yeah. you know, and, and for someone to be able to hear that or just have, you know, understand it just a tad. I think um, it's always good to have somebody who has that kind of experience and expertise. Let me ask you this. What kind of advice would you give Bonnie Holiday in 1998? Um, what would you say to your younger self? I would probably say something like what... Uh... Joe Thosman said to me. Wow, what a great interview so far with Vonnie Holiday. So this is part one. Join me next week for part two. Find out what legendary quarterback Joe Thiesman told him. Have a blessed week. Until the next podcast, God bless.